We have a rather heavy topic, if you will, Revelation's Battle of Armageddon and the Seven Last Plagues. I don't know about you, but this does not sound like a children's storybook that you want to read them before they go to bed each night. Daddy, read us again the story of the seven last plagues. I've never heard that before, uh, but we're going to go through that here just a little bit. Uh, really, when you think of the seven last plagues, what do you think of? If you read through Revelation chapter 16, it certainly is not a pretty picture. It's not a cozy picture. It's not something you look forward to or that you're longing to have happen. There's all kinds of things that are going to happen and unfold. And exactly when and how it's going to unfold is what we want to look at this morning. Will it interrupt our, our broadcast? Will we see all kinds of pictures happening on, of things around the world? Uh, perhaps whole cities going up in smoke, if you will. All kinds of natural disasters and those types of things. Armageddon is certainly something that we see in all kinds of Hollywood depictions, isn't it? Uh, what is Armageddon all about? And again, they try and come up with stories and scenarios, but I've never seen an Armageddon uh, film. I don't usually watch the films, but any kind of a, a trailer or anything else that looks cozy. Where are you going on vacation? Oh, we thought we might just go visit Armageddon, right? That's not exactly the picture that we have. And really, when we go through that chapter, we're looking at unprecedented series of worldwide natural disasters, unprecedented world financial collapse, global international conflict. Will Rocket Man be involved? I don't know. But I imagine that the Times or the, the Daily Times may read something like this Is this the end? A lot of people are projecting. The time of the end is just around the corner. Is it the case? And if so, what will it look like? And the other question that I think is fair to ask is how could a loving God afflict people with sores from head to toe? How could a loving God turn rivers of water into rivers of blood? Why would a loving God pour out these seven last plagues? Are they just some arbitrary scourge on the part of God to punish? And why these specific plagues. I mean, 1 John 4, 8 says that God is a God of love. Is it true that he is a God of love? And if so, can you see God's love in the seven last plagues? Is it true that all prophecy is Christocentric, meaning Christ is at the center of the prophecy? And if so, the question becomes, what do the seven last plagues do to teach us about Jesus? Have you ever asked those questions? Do you have good answers to those questions? We also want to see when does this period of tribulation occur? And are God's people raptured before this period of seven last plagues? That's a very popular teaching that God's going to rapture his chosen before he comes. Therefore, they won't have to suffer any of the seven last plagues. Are we on the verge of the tribulation, the time of the end and the battle of Armageddon? Well, for that, let's turn to our theme book, the book of Revelation and here, the third angel's message, Revelation chapter 14, at the heart, at the climax of the, the apex or peak of this chiastic structure in Revelation, we have this three angel's message. And it says, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. It doesn't need to be improved. It doesn't need to be redone or refashioned. It's everlasting to preach to those who dwell on the earth. Who's that? Well, to every nation, tribe, tongue, people, everyone. Yes, the message of Revelation is to go to the whole 
world. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Fear God, not in the sense of being afraid of God, but rather respecting or obeying God. Show him respect. Allow him to be Lord of your life. And then here's another key, and worship him. Worship who? Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Direct quote, copy and paste, taken out of the fourth commandment. Worship the creator God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's a memorial of the creator and the Bible Sabbath, if you will. The one who created and formed and fashioned us who created all things. Skipping down to the third angel. Then a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast. Here's another form of worship. If he worships the beast, however, and his image and receives his mark rather than the seal, the Sabbath of God on his forehead or on his hand. And so we have these two contrasting ideas two forms of worship. We have the worship of the creator and the worship of the beast. We have the seal of God and we have the mark of the beast. And so at the end, we see it's about worship. And who will you worship? And he himself shall also drink. Who's the he? He's the one that is worshiping and receiving the mark, the false worship. He himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So who will be the recipients of God's wrath? Those that have the mark of the beast. Who will have the mark of the beast? Those who worship the beast. And in their way and fashion as they say it should be done. And you might say, and what is the wrath of God? Well, Revelation 15.1 tells us plainly, and we'll look at this verse in a moment, but the wrath of God is the seven last plagues. And this wrath, which is poured out full strength into a cup of his indignation, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is a solemn warning given by these three angels, isn't it? But Revelation predicts a final conflict over this true and false worship. It's all going to come to a head. There's going to be this climactic moment. And if you're thinking Armageddon, you're on the right track. At the end of the third angel's message, still in Revelation 14, now verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus, which last night we learned the faith of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Here is this group at the end time that have both of those characteristics and it's an open group. Anybody can join. We welcome all to come in and be a part. And while the world is giving them all kinds of pressure to do something else, here are the saints being patient, saying, I know the world is saying this. I know that the, the leadership is saying that. I know government's saying this. Kings and, and influential people are saying all kinds of things. But I'm going to follow the Creator God. I'm going to abide by the Ten Commandments and have the faith of Jesus. So the great conflict in the last days of earth's history is a struggle in the human mind, if you will. The great battle is a battle over the soul or for the soul. It revolves around the issue of worship. So on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Yes, he provided the, the sacrifice for us, but as far as you and me, it's not finished. 
The battle still wages on for your heart and your mind and your soul, and it does for mine as well. How will we respond when our feet are put to the fire, so to speak? I remember in English class, we had to read through this red badge of courage. I didn't particularly like the book. I know it's a classic of sorts, but it's all about this young man in the Civil War. Will I run in that moment, or will I be brave and courageous and stand and fight even at the sake of my own life? And he's struggling and wrestling. He knows what he wants to do, but in that moment, he's wondering what he will do. It's not too far removed from where we are today, is it? We know what we want to do. By faith, we know the promises of God. We're becoming familiar with the prophecies. But in that moment, will we be true to our God? Or will we say, it's not worth it and run? It's a test of loyalty, similar to the test of loyalty in Daniel chapter 3. You might recall Daniel 2. We have this image and we have all of the, you know, Babylon's the head of Rome and Persia and Greece Rome divided Europe. Did I say Rome before? Anyway, you understand. You, you see the slide. In Daniel 2, the chapter before, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It outlines all of history in a very specific way. But Nebuchadnezzar is not satisfied being the head of gold and somebody else following him up. And so he creates the entire image of gold. And he says, you will bow down. You will worship. If not, we're going to make these furnaces seven times hotter and you'll go straight into the flames. It's a false form of worship. There's coercion involved. You will do this or it will be at your own peril. It was a test of loyalty with a false system of worship. And in the last days, an attempt will be made once again to substitute a counterfeit for divine truth. Revelation 15, verse 1, then I saw another angel in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. Oh, here we go. For in them, the wrath of God is complete. In them, what? In them, the last seven last plagues. So the wrath of God is the seven last plagues. And what did it say? Who is that reserved for? In the three angels' message, those that receive the mark of the beast. So what is God's wrath? God's wrath is not his anger at sinners. Rather, it's his judgment upon sin. During the seven last plagues, God withdraws his protective hand and all of the hellish forces break loose. We could say Satan has more free reign at these final moments of earth's history than he's ever had before. No more restraint, no more holding him back. And the seven last plagues are the awesome result of a world separated from God and a planet in rebellion. So let's look at events at the end, a little review. There's a worldwide preaching of the gospel talks about in these three angels' message. All humanity makes a final, eternal choice. Number three, the mark of the beast is enforced in a final conflict over worship. Number four, God's loyal people lovingly obey him. Number five, the seven last plagues are poured out. And number six, this is the good news, Christ delivers his people. Can you say amen? That will be a glorious day. So the question we want to ask, when will Jesus come in relation to the seven last plagues? Well, 15 verse 8 says, No one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were, what? Completed. 
So God's people are not raptured before the seven last plagues. And we could ask, where is the temple? Revelation 21, verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the temple, if you will, of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. You know, the rapture, this concept, I believe, is a subtle deception of Satan for an easygoing, crossless, health and wealth, prosperity form of Christianity. And it's very prevalent today by many TV preachers. But folks, Seventh-day Adventists believe in a God who is strong enough to hold them, his people, in his hand and keep them secure through the time of trouble. We live in a society that says, no pain, no suffering. Jesus came and died on the cross to give me a life of joy and happiness, prosperity and fulfillment. And if you're sick, it's because you don't have the blessing of God. And if you're faced with debt, well, then you don't have the blessings of God. The only thing you need to do is be faithful to Jesus, and it will be like seen on a cloud floating to the kingdom with health, wealth, and prosperity. I mean, they don't say it exactly like that, but if you listen to them long enough, it's very similar. But the problem with that is that it's not realistic to life because everybody sometimes goes through some sorrow in life, some heartache in life, some disappointment in life. But Christ holds us in the disappointment. We serve a Jesus who often does not deliver us from tribulation, but is with us in tribulation. We serve a Jesus who at times does not deliver us from sickness. At times he does, but is with us in sickness. We serve a Jesus who was with Noah during the flood, although the ark was being tossed and turned in the waves. We serve a Jesus who was with Joseph when he was betrayed by his brothers, when he was lied about by Potiphar's wife, who was with Joseph in prison. We serve a Jesus who was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery flames. We serve a Jesus who was with Daniel in the lion's den. We serve a Jesus who was with Job in his boils and afflictions and financial adversity when his house fell down. We serve a Jesus who was with the Apostle Paul, beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and put in prison. We serve a Jesus who is with Peter in bondage. Yes, we serve a Jesus who understands suffering, who had nails driven through his hands, a crown of thorns placed on his head, who was rejected. We serve a Jesus who is fully capable of meeting every one of life's trials and tribulations. That is our Christ. He is powerful enough to keep us through the time of trouble. So Jesus will come after the plagues. And how do we know that? Well, clue number one, no man was able to enter the temple until after the seven last plagues. And clue number two, Revelation 16, 15, behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now, wait a minute. This verse is after the sixth plague. What sense would it make for the revelator to say he is coming as a thief after the announcement of the six plagues, if he came as a thief before the plagues. Do you see the reasoning? It would make no sense to say, verse 15, he is coming like a thief if he'd already come as a thief in the past, at the beginning of the first plague. To those who believe in the rapture, you can ask, well, tell me what it's like when he comes as a thief. And they'll say something like, oh, he, 
he snatches his people away. You can be in an airplane and someone is snatched away over here. Maybe you're the pilot is snatched away. Maybe you're in a car driving down the street and, and somebody is snatched away. And there'll be accidents and, and so on. There'll be two in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. There'll be two in the bed. One will be taken. One will be left. Where's my wife? She's gone. What sense would it make to say that Christ delivers his people before the tribulation when the Bible says he's coming as a thief after the tribulation? 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. Notice the two things that are put right on top of each other. Coming as a thief, and the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So when he comes as a thief, it's not a secret coming at all. Because the elements are burned up. So the thief imagery is that he comes quickly at a time not expected. He comes when the people are not prepared for him. That's why Jesus said, Therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the coming of Jesus as a thief is always in reference to time, never in a reference to the manner of his coming. The second coming is a surprise to those that are unprepared. Do you know many thieves that knock on the door and say, here I come. Thieves usually don't announce they're coming. They come unexpectedly. Same thing with the thief imagery in the Bible. So Jesus will come to get his people after the plagues. Clue number one, no man was able to enter the temple until after the seven last plagues. Clue number two, Christ announces his future coming after six plagues have already been poured out. Conclusion, Jesus is coming after the seven last plagues. But the final crisis that is coming upon our world will lead men and women to make one of two decisions completely for Christ or completely against Christ. It's the polarization of all of society on this side or on this side, the sheep and the goats. You know, it seems to me that technology is already offering this polarization. If you want to specialize in any hobby and anything that you like, now the internet opens up to you all kinds of things. And so if you want to learn about prophecy, you have more resources at your disposal than you've ever had before. If you want to listen to sermons all day long, more resources than you've ever had before. But if you want to go find garbage, again, you have more resources than you've ever had before. It used to be only the rich and the wealthy had everything at their fingertips, but now the gap is starting to close more and more and more to where everyone with one little device and a few clicks can access just about anything that they want to. It used to be the rich and the wealthy that had a library. Now everybody has a library. Whatever your heart desires, and it's polarizing society, and people are having to choose, are they going to be sold out for Christ or sold out for the world? Because both are options, both are readily available. Take what you wish, whether it's righteous or unrighteous, holy or unholy, pure or impure, the choice is yours. There's no force, there's no coercion on God's side, but he longs to cover you with his robe of righteousness. So at the end, you have two distinct groups. Revelation twenty-two eleven makes note of this. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. This is the close of probation. And I, I used to think that this was God just saying, time's up, too late. You waited too long. Well, there's an aspect of that, but ultimately, if they had more time, they wouldn't change their mind. They're decided on where they are. 
And so he says, we've reached a point in time where everybody has been given the choice. Everybody has made their choice, right? If I divided this room right here and I said, who wants a beach vacation over here, a mountain vacation over there? And you all make your choices. I can make as many earnest appeals as I want to. Are you sure? Yep, we're sure. We're not moving. To he who is holy, let him be holy still. And to the righteous, let him be righteous still. So Revelation 16, 1, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Another question you may be wondering, do God's people go through the tribulation? Touched on that already. And again, why are they called the seven last plagues? Well, do we have plagues somewhere else in scripture? We do. You remember where they were? In Egypt with Pharaoh. But how many plagues were there then? Ten. Why ten in Egypt and seven at end time? Well, if you go back and study Egypt, you may remember that the first three affected the general land. That's everybody. The last seven affected only the Egyptians while the Israelites were protected. In the same way, I believe the seven last plagues do not touch God's people, just like the seven last plagues of Egypt did not touch God's people. How can we know this? Well, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about the children of Israel, and he mentions the pillar of cloud, the Red Sea, the wilderness experience, drinking from a rock, the serpents. And then he says this, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, now all these things happen to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul says there are example. An admonition, that's just authoritative counsel. So you have the children of Israel as an example of God's people in the last days. Does that make sense? Stop and think. Both groups are persecuted. Both are pressured to break God's law. Both appear helpless. And I would say both are protected during the plagues. How? By the blood of the lamb, both are delivered by God after the plagues. At the end of time, God is looking, I believe, for people that are fully dependent upon him, that have blood over the doorpost of their homes and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So God's people go through the tribulation. They went through the plagues of Egypt. The Hebrew worthies went into the fiery furnace. And we've already made mention of this story. And where is God? He's with them in the midst of it. So God is looking for a people that has faith that is going to last, faith that is going to endure, faith that holds on to Christ, even though everything around me, Lord, they're binding me up. They're making the fire seven times hotter. Lord, these guards, I'm never going to be able to get away. Where's the earthquake? Where's the tornado? God, they're throwing me in. He says, don't worry. I have a plan. And in Daniel chapter three, we see three Hebrews that are faithful and loyal to God, even unto death. But God says, not this time. Revelation declares God's triumphant people who go through the tribulation as victorious. Revelation 7, 9, we read about it here. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Later on, it says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. This is the group that God saw them through that great and final conflict. Continuing on, therefore, they are before the throne of God and served him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. 
They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor heat. This is plague language. If you haven't noticed, we're about to get into it. But this isn't going to happen to them anymore. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How personal is that? That we serve a God, that he's going to be the one to wipe the tears from your cheek. And so these seven last plagues, let's look at them. The first plague is one of sores. Before I get into that, the message of the plagues is in chapter 16. And we need to ask the question, does God just punish for the sake of punishing? Why would a loving God pour out the seven last plagues? And why these specific plagues? And so really the question becomes, do the seven plagues, or what do the seven last plagues do to teach us about Jesus and the love of God? So the first one is sores. Revelation 16, 2, in summation, a foul and loathsome sore. You can read about it there. Who did the sore fall upon? Again, those that had the mark of the beast. Those who did it not fall upon? The people of God. So plague number one, foul and evil sores like a boil. So the question is, what do those that enforce the mark of the beast say? To get those who receive the mark of the beast to take it. We're going back just a little while here. And what do they say to coerce people to receive the mark of the beast? They say, if you receive the mark of the beast, we will give you physical security. You don't want to suffer pain. You don't want to be persecuted for your faith. Then take the mark of the beast. That's all you have to do. Be like one of us. So the first plague is a physical affliction that says, those who enforced the mark of the beast could not deliver on their promise. Man's message, if you accept the mark of the beast, you will enjoy physical security. The reality we see in the first plague is all physical security is not in man, it's in Christ. All physical security is in Christ. I would rather trust Jesus with my body for physical security than go through some spiritualistic healer now to receive boils later. All physical security is in Christ. Every plague teaches us about Jesus, and we're just on the first one. Psalm 46, 1 and 2, God is our refuge and strength, very present help in trouble. It doesn't say man, it says God. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Plague number two, the seas turn to blood. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became blood as of a dead man and every living creature in the sea died. So plague number two, the sea becomes like blood and everything in it dies and flows to the top. What's this going to do to shipping? What's this going to do to the economy? Do you remember the oil leak in 2011 in the Gulf and the death and, and devastation it caused? You think, oh, I'm up here in Hendersonville. It's not going to affect me. Was that the truth of the matter? It did affect you. And there was all kinds of people worried about what this would do. Now it's not just an isolated Gulf of Mexico, but it's all the oceans, all the seas, all the ports, all shipping. And those who give the mark of the beast, what do they say? It will enable you to buy and sell. So plague number two, man's message, if you accept the mark of the beast, you'll enjoy economic security. What we really see is all economic security is in Christ. Again, they cannot deliver what they've promised. I love this promise, Isaiah 33, 16. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be claiming this one. Your bread will be, or bread will be given to him, his water will be sure. 
Just like God cared for the Israelites with the manna, just like he cared for Elijah in the wilderness when the ravens fed him, we are promised that our bread and water will be sure. I don't know where it's going to come from. God knows exactly. He has a thousand ways to provide for you, which you know nothing. What's the secret? Our economic security is not in man. It's in Christ. Plague number three. Now the rivers turn to blood. First, it was the sea. It was salt water. It was the oceans. It was shipping. But now the rivers. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. How would you like your spring, your well water? All of a sudden is blood coming out of the faucets. Now I say, hopefully not your well water, right? Water is a symbol of life in the Bible. Plague number three, the rivers become blood. Man's message, take the mark of the beast and we will preserve your life. Physical security, yes, but now we're talking about your life. Without water, without fresh water, how long can you live? Not long. I can't even get through one talk without drinking half of this thing. Need some right now. You should have brought your water bottle. It's good for you. And I heard the angel of the water, water saying, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. It doesn't say they are. The good news is it says they have, because I believe this is after the close of probation. Before the close of probation, there will be martyrdom. We've seen it already before in the Reformation many times before. But after the close of probation, I believe there will be no more martyrdom. Why? Because I don't believe we are playthings of the devil, friends. The only reason there'll be martyrdom is because the faith of Christian martyrs will stimulate some court judge, some jury, some onlooker to accept the gospel. And God will not allow a life to be taken unless there's a benefit towards the salvation of somebody else. So during the plagues, the devil cannot take our life. Our life is hid in Christ. If we are committed to Christ, our lives are not playthings of the devil. And so it says, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. All of our life is in Christ. If we are committed to Christ, our lives are not playthings of the evil one, but God will see us through and protect us. Number four, scorching sun. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Why didn't they repent? Because given as much more time as you want to give them, they're not going to repent. They've made their choice. They're standing on the side they've chosen. And so they're blaspheming God. They're calling curses upon God, but they're not going anywhere. Plague number four, men are scorched with fire. What is the object in this controversy? I believe this time it's worship. Rather than worshiping the creator, they have decided to worship the creature. And they've passed what kind of law? A Sunday law. And what they did not realize is that the object of the law that they have passed has been the object of pagan worship down through the ages. Egyptians worshiped the sun in Iman Ra. Babylonians worship the sun in Bel Marduk. Persians worship the sun in Beth Raism. Romans worship the invincible sun god, that which has been an object of worship unknowingly from scores of men down through history. So plague number four, man's message, all must worship on the day of the sun. But what's the hidden message of the fourth plague? All true worship is in Christ. I love Psalm 91, verses one to three. He who dwells 
in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. The seven last plagues are a vindication, if you will, of God's people who have placed all their trust in Him and not in man, not in any mark, not in any coercion, not in any promises, because all their promises just fade away like ropes of sand. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. So the summary, we have sores as the first plague, sea turns to blood, rivers turn to blood, scorching sun. And so the first plague calls us to give him our bodies, our physical securities in Christ. The second plague calls us to give him our money, our economic securities in Christ. The third plague calls us to give him our whole life, how only in Christ we can find true, genuine life and have life more abundantly. The fourth plague calls us to give him all of our worship and the affections of our hearts because all true worship is where? In Christ. Number five, darkness. Revelation 16, 10, continuing on. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They looked to the beast for light, but there was only darkness. What does Jesus say in John chapter 8, verse 12? I am the light of the world. All light is only in Christ. Jesus is light. Jesus is truth. So in plague number five, man's message has been, we are the source of light. We control the truth. God's message, all true light is where? In Christ. All truth is in Christ. Jesus is the center of every topic of last day events, friends. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. John 8, 12, I just quoted, I am the light of the world. Revelation 16, 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Their hearts are hardened, their minds are closed. And friend, I would submit to you that it's extremely dangerous to turn from any teaching of God's word that you know to be true. Because if you do that, you're making it that much easier the next time to gradually go along again. It's not that big of a deal. Now, here are the patience of the saints. The devil's pretty patient, too. If he can just get you to just kind of fudge the line just a little bit, not a big deal. And then if he can just get you to fudge it just a little bit more, and just a little bit more, and just a little bit more. And before you know it, time has gone by, and you find yourself in a place, and you say, how on earth did I get here? One small step after one small step after one small step until we're gradually led into darkness. Friends, the plagues are grim, reminders of the ultimate reality when a world abandons Christ and his love. Psalm 91 again, verses 5 to 8, You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side. That's the title of that book we were talking about. A thousand may fall, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Praise the Lord. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be fearful. We have to simply be in the hands of Jesus Christ. Trust him with our life. Trust him with our economic security. Trust him with our problems, our trials, our sickness, our ailments. Trust him with all of it. And then don't fear because he has your best interest at heart. Not just then, but now. In Christ, we are secure. We are sheltered and we are safe. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. And so plague number six, Armageddon. The word Armageddon comes from the Hebrew root words, 
Har and Megiddo, meaning mountain of slaughter. In the book of Judges, when his people were surrounded and doom seemed certain, God miraculously delivered them. Then the angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Friends, water represents people. All of a sudden, the support of the people dries up. Then the river Euphrates ran through Babylon. If we study out of history, it ran right through, and it was the support system for Babylon. We've been studying Babylon. And the support system, again, is the support of the people. And the support of the people is coming back significantly. That wound is being healed. But this verse tells me there's a time when the river will dry up and the support will be lost. You remember Cyrus, the king of the east, delivered God's people from the tyranny of ancient Babylon. Can we learn something from that? And is it possible that Jesus, the king of the east, will deliver God's people at the end of time? Right when it seems hopeless, when everything is lost, Jesus will come and save his people in the midst of Armageddon, in the midst of the biggest crisis on the planet. We'll say, lo, here is our God. We have waited for him. If we unpack this a little bit more, and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. Friends, three unclean spirits. The Protestant church reaching across and joining with the Catholic church, mingling with paganism and spiritualism, these three. And why frogs? Well, frogs was the last plague in Egypt that the magicians were able to mimic. Remember, they turned their rods into snakes. They turned water into blood. They, they duplicated the frogs, but that was the last great deception, if you will. And so at the close of earth's history, this last great deception of Armageddon, this is it. And they're coming out of the mouth of this false trinity, the dragon or spiritualism or paganism, the beast, the Catholic church. I mean, all of these are, are, are anti the, the real trinity, right? The beast, the Catholic church is, is symbolic of Christ. How long was his ministry? Three and a half years. How long did he have full control? Three and a half prophetic years, deadly wound, but he had a resurrection. And then the false prophet is the second beast out of the earth, the United States, Protestantism, performing great signs is the false Holy Spirit. And all of these are coming together for they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And this is where we find this verse. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see their shame or see his shame. And then they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. This is the showdown of the universe. But in the seven last plague, Jesus comes. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne of Satan and says, it is done. It is finished. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake had it not occurred since men were on the earth. Buildings are tumbling down. Mountains are crumbling. The earth is shaking. People are in fear. It says, then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone about the weight of a talent. They're killing people. And yet you have this group of individuals. You have God's people that see Jesus coming in the clouds. And they say, lo, this is our Lord. We have waited for him. Up until now, everyone said they were crazy. They were starting to wonder if they were crazy. Were they trusting in the wrong thing? But then lo, just as Jesus said he would come, he has come to take his people home and to deliver them from this mess. The story is told of a farmer who is walking around his property and, and checking things out. 
And unbeknownst to him, as he turns the corner, he sees that his barn has completely burned down. I mean, there's just very little left, just a, a pile of, of rubble and, and ash and other things. And he's devastated by this fire. So much of what he had was in the barn, obviously. He had some livestock in the barn and other things. But then as he's kicking around in the ashes, he sees this little tuft of charred feather and bones and whatever it might be, and he hears some kind of a noise, and so he just starts to kick it a little bit. And what does he find underneath? But perfectly fine, perfectly healthy baby chicks. I mean, that's about one of the cutest things on the planet. Saved, preserved from the inferno, if you will, on all the things that happened and, and things falling and all the rest. And where were they saved? They were fully protected under the wings of their mother who had sacrificed all so they didn't have to. They had gone through the great tribulation, but they were under the protective covering of their mother's wings. Psalms 91 verse 4, He shall cover you, friends, with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth, what's going to protect you? His truth shall be your shield and buckler. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Isn't that good news? For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. I imagine somebody today in a group this size is here and your heart's broken. Somebody today may be facing some real difficult experiences in your life. You may be stressed out about how you're going to pay for next semester. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe there's a relationship that's gone sour. Maybe there's a health difficulty. The phone call just came this week. I don't know. But you may be saying, I don't have to wait for the time of trouble in the future. My time of trouble is now. My life is falling apart. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I don't know what you're going through at home or at school or at work with parents, with your kids, with your spouse. But whatever your experience today Christ will hold you in his arms. He is your source of refuge, not then only, but today. And today, and today, and today, until he comes. Matthew 18, 28, Come unto me, all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you burdened today? Are you heavy laden today? If you're going through a time of trouble today, he is there for you now. He wants to teach you in the time of trouble you are going through today how to trust him and how to build your faith. So when every earthly support is cut off, you can trust him tomorrow. Jesus learned to trust in times of trouble before the cross so he could trust fully at the greatest time of trouble at the cross. Will you trust him today? Will you take his hand today? Will you place your life in his hands today? Dear Heavenly Father, we want to safely abide under your wings. We want to abide in your truth. We want to abide in the assurance of your love. We want to abide in the fact that you do have our best at heart, that we can trust you in all things. And we don't have to fear these plagues that are coming if we are and if our lives are hid in Jesus Christ. Not just the plagues of tomorrow, but the plagues of today. If we're hid in Christ, you have promised not necessarily to take everything away, but that you will be with us in the midst of our challenge, of our crisis, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. So Lord, whatever our challenge, 
We give it to you. We entrust it to you as we walk in your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.